Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, it's been nearly two months of a pay dispute between the Ontario optometrist and the provincial government. We'll give you the latest on that dispute. An outspoken law professor in Ottawa has been banned from Twitter for life for supposedly posting threatening comments about Prime Minister Trudeau. And Kathy Puckering, the CEO of John Monroe International Airport, is going to join us and talk about the recent announcement that allows passenger traffic back at the airport and what that's going to mean for the economy, for the airport, and for the community. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about what's going on here in the province of Ontario and the battle, and that's what it's shaping up to be right now between the provincial government and Ontario optometrists. Uh, We mentioned this a number of weeks ago, and uh, I was hoping that uh, when we got to this particular time and place here, that 4th of November, that this thing had long since been resolved, but it's not. And it it continues now, the dispute between optometrists and the province, a two-month mark just about now, uh, which means about 4 million people in Ontario still have no access to eye tests. Uh, And just so you understand what's going on, we'll give you the the, the thumbnail sketch of this. Uh, Yes, it's all about money and it's about uh, compensation and uh, what some people consider to be uh, unfair position that the Ontario government has towards optometrists, especially when you compare this with how other provinces deal with this. To uh, try to get some clarity on this, we're pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Dr. Sheldon Salaba, who is the president of the Ontario Association of Optometrists. Uh, doctor, pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you so much. Pleased to be here. We, we talked about this, uh, Doctor, a couple of months ago now, I guess, right near the beginning of this. Uh, I, I think we were both of the mind that, look, at this is they'll get together, we'll probably find some sort of an agreement. Uh, I don't know that we're any further ahead, maybe not even as far ahead as we were back in those discussions. What's going on or what's not going on, I guess, more to the point? You know, I think what you're seeing here is a lot of inaction by uh, the current Ford government. I'm shocked that we're here in November and um, we're still unable to provide services to children and seniors in this province. And uh, I had hoped that the government would have acted responsibly and um entered discussions with us so we can figure out how to um, rebuild a sustainable eye care system in Ontario. And to date, they haven't. Like you would think, um, they keep saying that um, they're waiting for us to come to the table. Um, They keep saying that they've presented fair and reasonable offers. Do you know they haven't reached out to us once since August 29th? We haven't heard anything officially from them since then. Zero phone calls zero emails and you know minister elliott says that um they're doing everything possible to um set up a good working relationship with us and with that type of track record where there's zero communication from them um i really think that that's poor maybe we could just uh, go over the, the 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 lay of the land here doctor so our listeners understand exactly what's going on uh, with optometrists and people say, "Oh, yeah, I get my annual visit, and, and you know it's it's covered by OHIP, and that's wonderful." But there are there are age there are demographic uh, qualifications for that, uh, as you mentioned for for young people, for children, and of course for seniors. Uh, and the, there's supposed to be compensation. I mean, that's what this thing is all about. And every province has a program, and I guess an agreement with the optometrists in their particular province about compensation to try to cover some of these costs. Uh, and I'm looking at the numbers here, and they haven't switched from the last time you and I talked back at the end of the summer. Uh, it, and just from my point of view, as I'm looking at these, Ontario has the lowest level of compensation of any other place, a, a province that I've looked at here. 
Uh, and in, in other words, it's getting to the point, as you described to us last time, where optometrists are actually covering part of the cost themselves. I mean, this is not being covered by the government, and it's it's not just affecting their profit margins, it's affecting their, their quality of care. Absolutely. You know, it's not even really about compensation. It's um, about costs. You saw the government announce yesterday an increase to minimum wage to $15. Back in 1989, minimum wage was $5. So it's gone up 10, $10 in the last um, 30 years. It still doesn't reach um, what um, people say is the minimum cost of, of living to be able to have a, a living wage, like $15 is below that. And optometry services have only seen an increase of $5 over that period of time. So, you know, the government really, we're talking about what our expenses are to deliver um, primary eye care services in this province. And those are the costs that aren't being met. Um, you know, we really need to work with the government to um, get an agreement uh, between both parties about what those costs truly are. But when we look at other jurisdictions in Canada, optometry services in Ontario are by far the lowest compensated. Um, Manitoba pays $77 for a senior eye exam comparable to what we provide here. The government says that they only cover that once every two years, but that doesn't affect the hard costs of um, what it costs us to deliver those services. So it's going to be, for us in Ontario, it's going to be $80 to provide a senior eye exam every year. It's still going to be $80 to provide it if it was once every two years. And if the government wants a more apples to apples comparison, they can look towards Quebec and Quebec pays $106 um, for a senior eye exam every single year compared to $45 in Ontario. $45. And, and let's underscore that again, $45. And it costs $80 to deliver that, that. If you walk into an optometrist today, well, you can't if you're over that 65 But it, it costs that optometrist 80 bucks. And, and I guess, really, doctor, all you need to do is look around the office. I mean, you're using the comparative the way things were 20, 25 years ago in the province when it comes to minimum wage and, and the delivery of optometry services back then. Look at the upgrades that have happened, the equipment that's used here, the technology that's improved. Uh, that I, People need to remind themselves that that's on the optometrist to supply that stuff. Those, you, you don't graduate and say, okay, here's all your equipment, there's your office space, go have a good life and a good career. you got to pay for that stuff, and, and those costs keep going up. Absolutely. Like all of those expenses are outside of the medical system. And uh, so we have to cover those things privately. And that goes all into the expenses of being able to deliver the highest quality of care to our patients. And that's what's suffering. We want to be able to pay our employees and we require a lot of employees in order to deliver services. We want to pay them a living wage so they can live in Ontario. Like expenses have been going up for three decades and our compensation um, hasn't increased. And that's where the problem is. That's where the disconnect is. And uh, we need the government to recognize that. But it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, we've always understood from when we've tried to engage with the Ministry of Health um, over the last three decades, that they have this attitude um, that the paying patients in the province should be uh, subsidizing the care and the expenses of OHIP patients. And interestingly enough, Todd Smith, who is the Minister of Community and Social Services, about 10 days ago wrote to a constituent um, that that is 
that the OHIP system was never designed to um, be resourced at full cost recovery for expenses. So they expect people that pay out of pocket in this province to pay for um, OHIP services that really are the government's responsibility because the government admits that they're only partially funding these services. Let's talk about where we're going to go forward on this. And by the way, I know that you've heard, and I know your members have heard uh, from some irate people over the last little while. I certainly still get emails from people that are saying, hey, I just had my appointment canceled. Uh, and I say, hey, you know, join the club. I, I had an appointment canceled a couple of months ago now because of this situation. I thought it was going to be long since resolved. Uh, and some people are saying, well, look, at doctor, I'll pay for it myself. You're not allowed to in Ontario, aren't you? If it's covered by OHIP, you can't sh shell out your own money and say, just move me up. That is correct. So in Ontario, it's the only province in Canada that has unique legislation, provincial legislation, that prevents people who are eligible from o for OHIP services to be able to pay for those services privately out of pocket. That's correct. Now, the, pro the Premier has uh, weighed in on this. Uh, well, he's made a couple of comments, but most recently uh, saying that, well, and he made the same comment, by the way, that you just mentioned a few minutes ago, that you know you guys have to come back to the table. We've done everything we can. Uh, yet, my understanding is his oh, quote-unquote offer is the same thing that was there before. Uh, there was a one-time payment of $39 million that was supposed to look after all the fact that you've been uh, underserved and underpaid by the, and compensated by the government uh, for the last 25 years or so. Uh, and that sounds like a big number, Doctor. Eight, you know, when you look at $39 million, but when you spread that among all your members and over the period of time and, and the, the money that, that they're paying out of their own pocket to try to deliver these services... Uh, I, I'm, I'm baffled that they can look at this and say, well, that's the solution right there. What are you guys worried about? Well, it's, you know what, it is kind of ridiculous. Um, these guys are supposed to be uh, fiscally conservative and um, understand finances. And really, that $39 million was a complete waste of taxpayer money. And it was used by the government as a publicity stunt to give them some talking points. Um, if you want to compare what they really would have had to have paid if... Uh, they were going to provide a retroactive payment to cost over the last decade, it would be over a billion dollars. So that's how much optometrists in the province over the last decade paid out of their own pockets in order to provide services to OHIP patients. And the third, so the 39 million results to about a dollar a service over the last decade of what we provided. And if you can believe this, they sent uh, money to 155 retired and deceased optometrists over that last decade. So I don't know how they can say they've done everything that they can because um, 2,200 optometrists told them that we didn't consent to them sending that money. We, we think taxpayer money is um, important to provide public services and it shouldn't be wasted and thrown around like that. We wanted to see that money held and put into providing sustainable services to people in the future. Optometrists here are not even act asking for anything retroactive. The government hasn't negotiated with us. All they're doing is trying to impose and use publicity stunts in the media um, and let this thing drag on. And what they're doing is the government are the ones that are preventing patients from having access to eye care services in this province. The uh, College of Optometrists of Ontario, Doctor, uh, do not endorse uh, what, what some of your members are doing here uh, by withholding services or saying we're not going to do this until this gets resolved. Uh, but they do say that uh, that any individual optometrist that decides to, to withhold care, those are their words, 
uh, is expected to take steps to ensure that those patients can continue to receive appropriate care, such as referrals. Uh, are your members doing that? And, and what are the referrals? To whom would they refer them to? Oh, like 100% our members are um, uh, doing those things. We don't want to see anybody negatively impacted um, by a delay in services because the government won't work with us. So um, we are complying with um, college policies during job action. These are similar policies that are in place for um, physicians in this province through the Ontario or the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario. Um, you know, if somebody has a problem, they're our patient, we're asking them to call us, we're um, taking down detailed information, triaging it, and we are making sure that that patient, depending on what's happening to them, are having care arranged by an alternate provider um, for whatever their specific circumstances. So if it's a retinal detachment, we're getting them to a retinal specialist. If it's an eye infection, they can see their family doctor. And if we can't get them to somebody else, um, we'll see them ourselves. So we're doing everything possible um, to make sure that nobody slips through the cracks. But I would say the government needs to take action now. Like this is going way too long and they need to they need to pick up the phone and start working with us instead of continuing to gaslight in the public. Are you optimistic that that's going to happen, that, that, that you're going to get back to the table and, and have some, some legitimate negotiations instead of why haven't you accepted our offer yet? Well, exactly. Like we need to have some legitimate negotiations. And I want people um, listening to your program to understand that we are ready, willing, and immediately um, committed to reinstating services as soon as the government picks up the phone and demonstrates to us that they are serious about actually negotiating with us. That hasn't happened yet. We waited, we offered them to do a cost analysis study with us back in December of 2020, and they waited until three weeks before a service withdrawal deadline. And then they haven't, like they've picked up the phone zero times, zero emails since August 29th. That's over two months ago. Um, 400 optometrists descended on Queen's Park on October 9th. We invited the Minister of Health to speak to us. Every opposition party came out um, and spoke at that rally. The government didn't communicate with us. They didn't invite us to come into the legislature. We were on their doorsteps. So they are the ones who are not, um, we're making ourselves available. We are telling their caucus, their MPP members that we want to speak to the Premier. Like pick up the phone we or send us an email. Let's get this done and get back to work. There's a, a in my mind anyway, from talking to certainly some irate customers and, and, and patients uh, are concerned and frustrated by this, but so also I, I've, some of the members of, of your organization that I've talked to. But this is an inevitability here, isn't there, Doctor? I mean, if there's, there's going to be a resolution to this one way or another. There's, there's no way that, that your members are going to simply say, okay, fine, we'll just continue to eat this. Uh, and when you look at the injustice, especially when you consider the levels uh, that other provinces have attained and the, the, the relationships that they've established, the province is going to have to step up here at some point. So I, I, the question I'm asking is, as one of these people that's had an appointment canceled and is concerned about this, is what are they waiting for? Because they know they're going to have to do this eventually. You know, I don't know exactly. I know you can't um, answer for them. I guess it's a part, partly rhetorical question, but I think it just adds to the frustration, doesn't it? Well, it really does. Optometrists provide over 4 million OHIP services in the province on an annual basis under normal circumstances. And uh, 
we are the lowest cost provider. We are the easy access point for patients. Um, we spend a lot of, like we do 20 minute, half hour appointments with patients um, to make sure that we understand everything that's going on with their eyes and um, we treat eye disease. So I don't understand what we're asking for um, is we're willing at a minimum to continue to work for free for um, OHIP patients in this province and the government, but we don't want to have to uh, we want our expenses covered. We don't want to have to pay um, a large amount of money in expenses in order to deliver those services. At a minimum, that's all we're asking for. I don't think that's unreasonable. And, you know, if you really look at it, um, optometrists are paid 0.2% of the $70 billion healthcare budget um, that is delivered in Ontario on an annual basis. In order to um, resource these services to cost, um, and change nothing, it has to go to 0.4%. It's a drop in the bucket for them. I don't know why they're being so stubborn about it. Well, I mean, if you go to your auto mechanic and say, look, I want you to absorb part of the cost of getting this car fixed, uh, you know what kind of reaction you'd get. If you went to the grocery store and look at, can you absorb part of the cost of my groceries this week? Because I think the prices are ridiculous. You know what kind of response you'd get. So I don't know why they're asking optometrists to do the exact same thing. Uh, doctor, we'll stay in touch on this, and, and hopefully uh, there's going to be some, some resolution of this sooner than later. I know an awful lot of people are waiting anxiously. Uh, thank you so much for the time today, as always. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the ongoing discussion and debate about uh, social media and how it should be, well, in some people's mind, policed, uh, or at least some sense of oversight anyway, continues, especially with the latest uh, move from Twitter. Uh, well, they have banned an Ottawa law professor, Amir Atarin, uh, for life for comments that he tweeted about, uh, well, suggestions he made about uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, the tweet is, is quite simple. It says, Trudeau should be tarred and feathered for putting child's lives in danger, children's lives in danger. Uh, he tweeted, he also uh, tagged uh, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole and, and NDP leader Jagmeet Singh in this. Uh, Twitter looked at that and said, that's, uh, that's threatening language, and he's been banned for life. Now, some people are saying, look at freedom of speech. This is an overreaction. They shouldn't have done this. Others are saying they were justified in doing this. So where do we draw that line and who makes the call? Joining us to talk about all this is uh, Jeffrey Devorkin, who's a senior fellow at Massey College, also a former director of journalism at the University of Toronto, Scarborough campus, and author of the book, Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Uh, Jeffrey, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Bill. Uh, this... <laughs> I, I got to tell you, I, 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 I can understand that some people looking at this and say this is disturbing. Probably not the worst thing I think I've ever read on Twitter, uh, but disturbing nonetheless. Uh, was Twitter justified in, in going to the extent that they did? Well, I think they reacted perhaps a bit too far. Um, the phrase tar and feather has a long, terrible history to it. It's become a bit of a euphemism now. The point that I think Twitter was trying to make was that there needs to be some level of civility if you're going to use Twitter to express an opinion. Maybe banning for life might go a little too far. Uh, the professor has the right to his opinion and even has the right to harsh speech. Um, the question I guess Twitter didn't examine was, does this actually constitute a real threat? I would say it probably doesn't, although I think it's a kind of stupid phrase to use. And the professor who comes from California 
should, and who has a law degree from UBC, should know that threatening a public official in the United States is a felony, is an indictable offense, and you can serve jail time for doing it. So I think that he may have got caught up in his own uh, ability to express a phrase. Uh, should he have been banned for life? Um, probably not. Should he have been removed from Twitter for a certain period of time? That would have been, in my opinion, more appropriate. I, and I know that uh, in his defense, uh, the professor says, well, look, at you know, Randy Hillier, the outspoken MPP, now an independent MPP in Ontario, uh, made a similar tweet, actually. He says, you know, when the Ontario legislature reopens, people should bring a pot of boiling hot tar and a case of feathers, and each politician who arrives deserves both a tarring and feathering. Uh, pretty outrageous stuff there, too, Jeffrey. Uh, he got nothing. Well, I think I think this is the problem with social media, is that some people are able to say certain things and get away with it, and other people can't. There's no consistency around this. I think what needs to be established is some level of, first of all, self-restraint, <laughs> kind of difficult mm. these days, uh, but also a, a kind of a, a similarity of, of approaches by media organizations as to what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And I think that that's the, that's the challenge for us. If we believe in free speech, and I believe most of us do, um, should there be any limitations on what constitutes personal opinion and expression? And that becomes very problematic. At a, first of all, it would go against the Canadian Charter of Rights if uh, someone was banned permanently for expressing an opinion. The question, I guess, is who is making these decisions? For mm. example, a Twitter. Um, you know, is it some um, callow youth, dare I say it, or is it someone with a little more experience in how to handle these measures? I think that becomes. I think the lack of clarity on on Twitter's part is also a problem. And and that's really part of the greater discussion, isn't it? Because you know, we've talked about, especially in the last couple of weeks, about Facebook and Twitter and, and, and other social media platforms. Uh, and I, I think probably there is some consensus that, okay, there, there need to be some parameters here. But the overarching question is, okay, who's the filter? Well, you know, and and what, what, are the, what are the judgments that they're making? How do they base those judgments? And we really don't know, do we? No, Bill, that's, that's absolutely right. And I think that what we need to do is express our concern to social media groups about how decisions are made so that we all understand what we're dealing with here. And right now, I don't think, I don't think we know what's going on and who's, who's making these decisions. I noticed that the CBC has banned comments on its Facebook page because they were getting so out of control, so vile, that CB the CBC decided to say, look, this is not a expression of public opinion. This is kind of hate-mongering. And so they've decided to shut down the comments page on their Twitter uh, page. question is whether they should have a, a Facebook page at all, but that's what they've decided to do. And actually, I think that that makes sense, that either we moderate comments uh, in media and have someone responsible for for going over the comments that appear on a web page um, and to say, okay, this is acceptable, but this is not acceptable. And that journalists make those kinds of editorial choices 
all the time, every day. So this is not a, a, a curb, curbing of free speech at all. And I think the other thing that I would say to, that I've said to my students was that you, you as individuals, you students as individuals, you don't have any right to be, to, to be kept free from offensive statements. If you're offended by something that I say in my class, you can come and tell me I didn't like that, and then we can discuss that. But sometimes people will say things that will cause offense. And maybe these days the level of people feeling offended by something has risen to a new level, and that becomes also an issue in, in, this, in this very sensitive time that we live in. I, I know you and I probably are, are old enough to remember the old days uh, when somebody was ticked off about something like this, and in this case it was about the vaccination programs, uh, you'd write a letter to the editor, and, and, and it would be vetted by the editorial board of that particular publication. And some of them would get in, some of them wouldn't. They'd just say, oh, that's that's vile. Uh, I, I, we can't go back to those days, nor, nor should we. I mean, that horse is out of the barn with social media. Uh, we'll, we'll never exercise that level of control. Uh, but where do you draw the line and who makes the, the, the judgments on this is interesting. But I, I wanted to ask you something else about this, too, because in his defense, uh, the good professor here says, look, at, you know, you guys overreacted. This was this was all metaphorical. Is, I'm wondering just how legitimate that is as a line of defense. I mean, if King Henry II had said, you know, somebody rid me of this troublesome priest when he was talking about Thomas and Becket. Uh, and, and, of course, a, a bunch of, of very aggressive knights heard that and went and killed Becket. They stabbed him to death in the cathedral. Uh, whoops, that was a metaphor, guys. You shouldn't have done that. I mean, is, is that really a legitimate defense? Or is the idea of a metaphor really in the ear of the beholder? Well, I think, I think that's exactly it. I mean, we heard during the election campaign very strong anti-Justin Trudeau remarks from a number of people. And some people in a, on a campaign trail decided that they were going to throw rocks at the prime minister. So that somebody's speech leading to an action is obviously something that we need to figure out how to handle. If you say, express an opinion about the prime minister and say, I disagree with him on such and such an issue, that's your right to do that. But if you say, I disagree with the prime minister and there should be some kind of consequence to that, that I think goes too far. And I think that there is... There are laws in this country and in most countries against uh, inciting violence. And the question then is, is calling for the prime minister to be tarred and feathered, is that inciting violence? Well, these days it might be considered that. And clearly Twitter's, tw Twitter seems to think that's the case. Um, I don't, I'm not, I'm really conflicted about the, the creating values in our society and respecting a person's right to an opinion, but also taking it up to, but not including inciting violence. That becomes the issue for me. And, and I, this is, I think, the concern, and, and maybe maybe it was the, the motivation for Twitter to, to do what they did with the professor here, because we've seen too many examples of that, haven't we, where people have taken it uh, too far and, and used, uh, well, it could be a tweet, could be a speech by an elected official as their justification for it. 
And we have moved past that, haven't we? I mean, we, we don't agree to disagree anymore. We don't just say, you know, I, I think the prime minister or the president or whomever it is made a bad call on this. They shouldn't have done this. They should have done this instead. Now we're saying, yeah, that guy made a bad call. He's an idiot. And you know what? He should be punished. He should be put to death for that. And and they, those may be metaphorical. They may not be. But it's it's the sort of thing that can actually fuel that sort of, of reaction from some people. And, and who knows what can happen in a situation like that. I don't expect anybody to show up on Parliament Hill to tar and feather the prime minister. But it, it may well be the motivation for somebody to say, yeah, you know what, we have to take this to the next level. Well, and I think I have, I have a, a personal stake in this idea because when I was working at NPR in Washington, D.C., and I was writing a weekly column about NPR's coverage on certain issues, I got a couple of death threats. And so I, my bosses notified the FBI. They tracked it down. They warned the people, the two people who were doing the death threats, and it stopped. Maybe that's all it requires. I mean, I didn't want anyone to go to jail for saying they wanted to cause me uncomfortable, an uncomfortable situation. But I thought if this could be kind of handled in a way that would stop this, that was, in my opinion, a good outcome. I didn't want anyone to go to jail just for expressing an opinion about how much they dislike my columns. But people, I, I, I guess, again, I'm just trying to look at this in, in, in historical perspective, but also con considering where we are in 2021, that words matter and, and it can come back to bite you. I mean, how many times have you seen, you know, crime dramas on television where some guy says, I could kill you if you did that. And the guy ends up dead in the next scene. And of course, who's the first person the police go to? The guy that said he was going to kill him. Oh, exactly. I didn't really mean it. Well, you don't know that. I mean, the word is the word and the, the, you know, the, the thought process is the thought process. Uh, and, and there was a time, remember Jeffrey, when they say, look at, if you're really peed off at somebody go ahead and write that letter wait you know next morning read it again before you mail it and see if you really want to send it you don't do that with social media you hit send and bingo it's gone and well that's, and you're doing it at the right. height of your anger and you may not be rational at that time that's right and i think that that's an obligation on the, that media organization to say okay this contravenes our sense of what is appropriate and therefore you have written this thing about Dvorkin and his awful columns <laughs> um, and and you want to threaten Dvorkin but you can't uh, you can express your opposition to his ideas but you can't threaten him and I think that that becomes the issue for all media organizations especially now where it's so easy to, to be angry anger is the easiest thing we've seen how Facebook has used the algorithms that it's that it has access to to make people angry and i think that that now we're going to see over the next little while these large aggregators these large media organizations being forced to take responsibility for carrying the messages that may in that may provoke some kind of anger and possible action and, and I think they're probably understanding the delay of the land here, aren't they, Jeffrey, and saying, well, maybe we better do this. I mean, you, you look at some of the hearings that are going down, the congressional hearings south of the border right now, uh, where you've got elected officials saying, well, if you guys don't do this, we'll impose the restrictions and, and we'll do the vetting. And I don't think Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or anybody else wants to see that happen. 
so they may be trying to be proactive in situations like this. I mean, uh, the good professor here, uh, Mr. Professor Taran, I mean, he's, he's known for his activism. He's known for his radical views. I mean, you know, he calls the province of Quebec a, a white supremacist province. And, uh, and based on some of the, the comments that he's seen what, and, and, and heard about and, and enacted himself, I guess. So the guy has very strong opinions. We understand that. Uh, I don't know if Twitter flags a guy like that and says, be careful of this, uh, you know, but a lifetime ban seems uh, to me a, a little bit bizarre. I mean, the only other person I ever remember that got one of those, I guess, was Donald Trump. Now, maybe there's some justification based on his body of work. Uh, but, you know, do, they, do the social media platforms go to that level and say, you know, that Dvorkin guy is a little off the, you know, the deep path. Maybe we better keep an eye on just about everything this guy posts just in case. You know, Bill, that's your job. You watch Dvorkin's tweets and make sure he's okay. Well, I, tr- I trust you to handle handle this in the proper way. Oh, but I would, yeah. I, I'm sure. I, I think that that's the, that's the challenge right now. I was, I was at a conference yesterday with a group of lawyers from Ottawa trying to figure out what are the limitations of the regulator of the CRTC coming up with this new bill, C-10, which is going to be reintroduced by, mm-hmm. by the federal government, to what extent should the CRTC have oversight on any of these things, on programs, on opinions, on news? And it was, you know, it was a very interesting day-long discussion with a bunch of very thoughtful uh, legal folks um, who said, well, we have to be really careful because the Charter of Rights says that people have the right to opinions, even if they are offensive. But I guess the question that you and I have hashed out here, Bill, is people have the right to their opinions, but they don't have the right to threaten. And I think that becomes that becomes the, the judgment, whether we want to give that over to a regulatory body like the CRTC or whether we want to let uh, uh, Global or the CBC handle it at, at a more uh, local level. That also becomes the issue for discussion. I think that we're on the verge of, of exploring these things in a really interesting and important way. Well, and I'm hoping the discussion is going to be rational about this, as you say, about uh, who's going to do this. If it's going to be the CRTC, where are the parameters going to be? Uh, and, and to your point about Bill C-10, I mean, this is, this is going to be the second incarnation, or at least we assume it is anyway. Uh, the one that the the, uh, the last Liberal government, of course, introduced, uh, received all kinds of flack because they thought it went way too far in so many areas. Uh, there's a new heritage minister, Minister pa- uh, Pablo Rodriguez, of course, is the minister. And, and I'm wondering if he's going to take the uh, the red market parts of this and say, look, there's a way we can tone this down a little bit and still get the, to the point. But uh, we don't know that yet. But it's going to be, have an interesting uh, tone to it, I think, when this debate continues. And it's certainly going to when they introduce this legislation. Absolutely, and I can't wait to see the the draft form of the legislation for the next iteration of C10, uh, because people, for example, in Quebec feel that the original bill didn't go far enough in protecting language rights, Mm -hmm. whereas people in general, this is a generalization, but in English Canada, there was a sense of let's let a thousand flowers bloom and we'll figure it out as we go along. Well, it's going to be an interesting debate. I'm sure we'll talk about it at the time. Jeffrey, always a pleasure. Great to get your perspective on this. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Bill. Cheers. Take care. Jeffrey Dvorkin, of course, Senior Fellow at Massey College. He is the former Director of Journalism at the University of Toronto and author of a fascinating book called Trusting the News in a Digital Age. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, some good news uh, for uh, people in the airline business and for travelers for that matter, too. Uh, Transport Canada has said that uh, it's further easing travel restrictions here in the country that are now going to allow more airports to accept international passenger flights. Uh, This is all going to happen by the end of the month. Uh, Transport Canada says the government's strict vaccine travel requirements are going to be fully phased in by November 30th, uh, issuing a pan-Canadian proof of vaccination passport, etc. But this has created opportunities for them. Well, one of the uh, airports that got the go-ahead and the thumbs-up to do this is John C. Monroe Hamilton International Airport. And uh, it's great news for this community for a whole lot of reasons. Kathy Puckering is the CEO of John C. Monroe Hamilton International. She joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Kathy, great to have you back on the program. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm great, Bill. How are you? I must be in a much better mood now because I know you guys have been waiting for this uh, for the longest time. And and the pandemic has impacted, uh, well, your airport and every other airport across the country in various ways. Uh, And and I know that when we talked a few weeks ago, I mean, the the cargo situation is actually pretty good because, uh, I guess, of online buying and things like that. So, And that's always been the bread and butter for for the airport, isn't it? But passenger traffic is still a, a, a very important part and a growing part of your business. Oh, definitely. And we, we like to look at, you know, our business with, that the services really complement each other. So cargo is that stable um, opportunity that we continue to have. In 2020, we saw a 24% growth. Uh, we're still seeing that, that strong demand uh, continue into 2021. And our partners uh, with CargoJet, DHL, you know, now adding Prime and, and Amazon into the works along with UPS has just continue to keep the the airport, you know, fully operational through through all the challenges that we've had, and even seeing daytime flying now for cargo, which is exciting. Uh, but as the the passenger uh, from the passenger perspective, you know, one of the good things for Hamilton is we we actually never shut down. Uh, we just had a significant mm-hmm. reduction, as as what you saw across the world, but or, and 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 in Canada, but. We never shut down, and that those domestic services that we've been providing for the last 20 months have, you know, started off providing people that needed to travel, like essential travel across the country. But then, as as Canada opened up, we really saw as people became more accustomed to the pandemic and and what they needed to do to travel safely, it's been actually performing quite well. I'm going to talk about that. I'll get back to the to the cargo thing in a second because that's a, a great part of the success story for for the airport. Uh, but the passenger traffic itself, uh, as you mentioned, even when, you know, national travel, we could still go from place to place within the country. Uh, there's a lot of nervous people that just said, I'm not so sure if it's safe. I, I, are we over that now, Kathy? I mean, the precautions have been in place for quite some time. There's a there's a record of, of usage right now that indicates that what you're doing here, the protocols that the airlines are putting in place seem to be effective. Is, is that, I think, increased the, the comfort level people have with traveling now? Oh, definitely. And and at the very beginning, I mean, people were anxious and the airlines really uh, just needed to communicate what they had always done before on keeping, you know, the air travel experience, the aircraft safe, the HEPA filters that had always been in place. Um, the introduction at airports on, you know, heightened cleaning and the partitions that we would put in place to keep, you know, people apart and, and minimize that interaction uh, was a, a huge, you know, benefit. But really today, it's all about the vaccination. And as, you know, we continue to see more and more people become vaccinated, you know, double vaccinated, traveling when you know everybody else in that aircraft or in that airport journey, 
uh, has been double vaccinated, it just provides that extra sense of comfort um, to people when they're traveling by air. Well, we've noticed that in some of the other facilities, too. Uh, I mentioned, you know, going to the Tiger Cat games at Tim Horton Field now. Uh, it, 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 it's, you know, people that are saying, well, I don't want to get in a big crowd. But when you know that everybody else that's in that ballpark is, is double vaccinated, it's not bulletproof. I mean, you know, there's you still have to be cautious in the mask wearing and, and social distancing, et cetera. Uh, but it's it's the same thing with the airports, I would think, too, that people are used to it now. I don't think it's going to be the new normal, but, I mean, it's something that we still have to live with and I'm going to continue to live with, I guess, for the next little while. Oh, definitely. And and we've done extremely well on our, our campaigns on just promoting Hamilton International. And what we're really proud of here is that the journey that you actually take in the facility is quite short. And, you know, we've actually tracked it from where you park your car in our parking lot to getting on that plane is 200 steps. So what a better way to just minimize the amount of time that you're actually in that airport and in areas that, you know, tend to be um, congested, you know, and we're doing everything to ensure that it's not, um, that people feel definitely they've got their own space and that we're making that journey for them as, as, as quick as possible, as simple as possible, and making sure they're safe throughout the entire process. Kathy, let's talk about the protocol, if we could, just so it's clear in, in people's minds. Mm-hmm. Uh, my understanding is that Canadian travelers need vaccin- vaccination documentation, as you've talked about. Uh, and, and by the way, that's not just for, for air traffic, that's rail travel, any federally regulated uh, travel, I guess, including marine transportation, rail transportation, et cetera, you must be fully vaccinated. Is that still the the case? Oh, definitely. So on October 30th is when the, the phased-in process started uh, by Transport Canada. Um, so for Canadians fully vaccinated in order to travel, there's a, a phased-in period that takes us from October 30th to uh, November 29th. Uh, For those that haven't fully qualified, there's the ability for them to provide proof through um, the molecular test taken within 72 hours before their flight. But effective November 30th, all travelers must be fully vaccinated. And there's very, very few exemptions on that travel policy that's been put in place by Transport Canada. And that actually um, is in conjunction with the fact that you know, federally jurisdicted industry, such as employees at airports. Um, in those areas where passengers are traveling, all the employees must be fully vaccinated as well. So the traveler can find that additional comfort that will, you know, reduce that potential anxiety on traveling where they know they are in an environment where, where everyone is vaccinated. And, and as you mentioned, that, that goes into effect at the end of this month, at the end of November. Uh, you can do the test right now, and, but after that, it's, it's, this is the way it's going to be. And I'm glad you brought up the, the exemptions because we've talked about this with the, actually Health Canada officials, and they're using the same parameters uh, that Dr. Tam has told us about here. Basically, if you have an allergic reaction or if there's a risk of, of cardiac problems, and, and that's it. Uh, if you don't like it and say, well, I'm, I, you know, I, I have a philosophical difference, uh, too bad, so sad. That, that doesn't qualify as an exemption. So fully vaccinated by uh, November 30th. What about people coming into the country, though, Kathy? I mean, now that we're sect- accepting international flights, uh, for people that are coming from other jurisdictions, the United States and, and other destiny or places as well, uh, where they're beginning their, their choice, uh, they must also be fully vaccinated to be able to, to land, and, and not just in Hamilton, but I guess any Canadian airport that's under federal guidance. Right, yes, yeah, so so that is in effect as well. Um, for those that are traveling right now that don't meet that requirement, so currently, for example, children 12 years of age um, mm-hmm. or younger, 
are not are not required to be vaccinated at this point. So the government is putting uh, programs in place at the airports on what you do on arrivals. Um, currently, the airports that are open today for uh, international travelers, there are some random um, COVID arriving tests. They need to provide that proof of, of, of a test 72 hours before they depart that city on their inbound flight into a Canadian airport so that they're actually providing those documentations and those are being verified upon arrival that those tests have been um, have been um, taken and the fed, our federal government is actually reviewing all those documentation on entry. So, so it's really again, about that proof of the proof of vaccination yeah. or the proof that you've had the test proving that you're, you that you do not you're not covid positive. I was talking to somebody in the airline industry the other day that was anticipating this announcement being made, and I'm glad it finally has happened from the federal government uh, about opening up a number of other airports, including uh, John C. Monroe Airport here in Hamilton. Uh, is uh, It was a caution, I guess, to travelers, Kathy, and I guess we want to remind our listeners about this too, is if you are traveling to a, well, maybe a sun destination or someplace in the States, wherever the case might be, make sure you check where you're going to to make sure that you understand what the travel uh, qualifications are there because it does vary from place to place, doesn't it? Oh, most definitely. So, you know, what we would recommend and suggest to everyone is that before they travel, they check with the airline. Uh, the airlines will be ensuring that all of that information is on their website. Um, Transport Canada, the federal government, will also be giving travel advisories if there are countries that have, you know, varying um, states of, of COVID and what you need to be aware of as you're leaving the country and going to these other destinations. So it's very much check before you leave, understand where you're going, and as well as needing to understand what you need to do before you're entering back into the back into Canada. Yeah, the last thing you want to do is, is land there and find out that you're, you don't qualify and, and it puts you into a sticky situation that I don't think anybody wants to face. Now, let's let's talk about what's going to happen going forward here as long as people understand uh, the qualifications and the parameters in which they use them, but that the vaccination and proof of vaccination. Uh, about the destinations, uh, in a related story, uh, we know that a number of carriers have been basically, I guess, contacting you, Kathy, at the airport and saying, look, as soon as this happens, we want to start flying out of Hamilton. Uh, in past years, and I'm sure it's going to happen now that we've got the okay from the federal government, uh, this has been a pretty busy, busy place for, for winter destinations, for sun destinations. Uh, the passenger traffic uh, does, uh, well, it, it, it's increased significantly over the last number of years. And a lot of these uh, carriers that are, are well-known to people are, are chomping at the bit to get back into Hamilton here. Oh, definitely. I mean, we've never had so many discussions as, as we have had with the our three carriers that have been providing the winter uh, destinations to our market for quite some time. So between Swoop, Transat, and Sunwing, um, our program has historically run from late November, December, right through into April, and providing destinations in Florida, Mexico, and the Caribbean. So we actually had an earlier program that was to have started in October this year by Swoop uh, going into Florida. And because of the restrictions, they've been canceling those flights. Uh, we were very excited this week um, on, on Monday where we had our first flight uh, into Florida, into Sanford, Orlando um, as an outbound because we were allowed to go outbound. We just, it couldn't, it can't return un until mm -hmm. um, the, the end of the month. So those flights will go into Toronto but we're really excited now that um, in addition to Swoop already starting their Florida, 
that, you know, as we get closer to the November 30th date, they will be adding the rest of the flights into the schedule and excited to see the return of Sunwing and Transat as well. Um, Transat starting in December. Sunwing did proactively cancel some of their service in in December, so they're not starting now until uh, mid to the end of January, but we're working really closely with them on trying to get those flights repositioned back in Hamilton now. Um, The market is strong, and we know that, you know, our Hamilton market and our community very much want those flights here. So what we can do to return those here more more quickly is is our focus now that we've resolved the NOTAM issue. Uh, We should mention, just in the way of background, for people who may be relatively new to the area, and, and wondering why the activity, uh, there's the, the advantages, of, and one of the reasons, and we'll do this, I guess, in two parts, Kathy, uh, one of the reasons the carriers are so interested in, in John C. Monroe Hamilton Airport, I, well, two main reasons, I guess. First of all, the less congestion than there is at Pearson. Uh, landing fees are, are different here. It's, it's, it's very attractive for a lot of these carriers to say, hey, Hamilton's a better alternative for us, isn't it? Oh, definitely. And we, we pride ourselves on that. And, and Hamilton has very much demonstrated, you know, over the many years that we've been providing the service that it's, it's a, it's a low cost market and it's really people traveling leisure or it's visit family friends. It's going away on those trips. We're not the business community and the traveler. And to be able to, you know, get to your airport in Hamilton and, you know, 15, 20 minute drive, park your car and be on that plane in a lot less time than you can at driving to those, those other larger airports. Um, as well as, you know, the ground transportation experience as well. Like, you're not looking at the congestion and the delays. And it, you know, there's, there's more certainty around, you know, uh, arriving and departing on time. And the markets are strong. Like, the, the, the commitment from the community on these flights has been very, very successful. And our airline partners uh, very much like serving uh, the routes that they're providing in this marketplace. It works really well for them. Well, and, and convenience, so that's, that's the one side for the carriers, but I mean for the customers themselves, for the travelers, and I can speak uh, from personal experience when, when we've used uh, John C. Monroe, which is as often as we can, uh, is the convenience for the passengers. I mean, you can, you can be there, land there, uh, and, and be on your way and probably be home anywhere from 20 to 35, 40 minutes from the time that you touch down to John C. Monroe Hamilton International Airport. And you contrast with some of these larger airports, right, 35, 40 minutes later, you're not even at the baggage carousel yet. Uh, and so, and then you've got to fight the traffic to get back to where you were. Uh, that that's that scores big points with consumers and travelers, doesn't it? Oh, definitely. And if you look at even the the from the time you land and then taxing into the terminal building, I mean, you're talking less than five minutes. Where you know the your, your, the the doors are opened, you're off that plane, and you are in your car. And you, you know, in a, in a matter of you know, time that you may not have even have gotten to the gate at a larger airport. So it, it really reduces the amount of time um, in the entire experience. And, th- and that's what it's all about, right? You don't want to spend a lot of your time driving. You don't want to spend a lot of your time in your car. Um, you don't want to spend a lot of the time in the plane when you're not in the air. And from the airline's perspective, you know, Hamilton is very attractive as well, not only because of our, our proximity to a large catchment area. You know, we've got over two and a half million people within an hour drive. Uh, but and the low fees, but as well, they can turn that aircraft around. Like by the time you get to the gate and unload those people, it's less than 30 minutes. They, they clean that aircraft or groom it, um, and then they're reboarding again. So that plane is only sitting on the ground for an hour, and, and it's no secret the planes don't make money when they're on the ground. So how do we get it back in the air, do it quickly, 
they love that experience in Hamilton. And we love being part of the process where, you know, we're, we're part of a journey where people are going somewhere to have fun, to visit family, friends, and they're doing it more quickly than they would at some of the alternatives that they have. And the takeaway here and the good news, of course, is that uh, is that those flights are going to commence once again at John C. Monroe uh, International Airport, of course, uh, for those sun destinations. And uh, look now, because there's going to be a rush. Uh, a quick P.S., though, about the, the cargo business, because I, I know that that's something that you're awfully proud of here. And we're one of the busiest, I guess, if not the busiest cargo airport in Canada uh, because of the fact that, like you say, you never close. Uh, but I found it interesting, especially over the last couple of months, because we're all concerned about the economic concerns that we're facing, you know, trying to come out of the recovery here after COVID. Uh, when a, a lot of neighboring municipalities are, are looking to attract businesses, and I've seen this in some of the brochures and some of their online stuff, uh, they, they advertise the fact that we're close to Hamilton Airport uh, because they know that that's a hub for people to get the goods moving back and forth. And it's fascinating. That's not just Hamilton businesses, but businesses in this general southern Ontario area are, 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 I guess, uh, you know, singing the praises of Hamilton Airport. And that's a, that's a, a compliment that, uh, that I guess really kind of underscores just how important the airport is, not just to the Hamilton area, but to Southern Ontario. Oh, definitely. And, you know, kudos to the city of Hamilton as well. I mean, we're right in the middle of the airport employment growth district land, and there's, you know, 555 hectares of land adjacent to us right now. I have never seen as much development um, in this area in my time here in Hamilton. And the industry is is attracted to the city as well as to the airport to be close to an airfield where they can move their goods. And if you look at the expansions that we've had most recently on airport with DHL, cargo jet expanding its facilities, but then off airport, you know, soon to open, if it hasn't now, the, the Amazon Fulfillment Center, just on the other side of our runway, uh, 855,000 square foot. I think they're looking at employing 1,600 people, and it's to open uh, this month. And the development to the north of the airport as well, it's, it's very attractive to be in Hamilton right now. It's very attractive for anyone in the supply chain to be on an airport or to be near an airport. And it, it's very exciting. Well, it's a it's a great news story for a, a, a very very important entity in Hamilton's economic development and really Southern Ontario's economic development and recovery as well. Uh, Kathy, congratulations on this. I know you and your staff are very excited about uh, what's going to be happening going forward on this. Uh, I'm glad you had some, a few minutes to take some time and talk to us about this this morning. Appreciate it. Oh, excellent! Thank you very much. And we are we're so excited that people now will be able to, you know, get back to what a normal life. Um, will be and uh, please uh, uh, look at our website uh, check those travel experiences there is there is a lot of pent-up demand out there and uh, we're we're very we're very happy of the events that happened this week and thank you for having me bill you betcha take care kathy kathy puckering ceo for john c monroe hamilton international airport you're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, I've got a lot of ground to cover with uh, some topics that have been uh, front and center over the last little while, especially to do with the uh, sexual assault scandal with the Chicago Blackhawks. Is that over with now? Uh, and uh, most recently with, uh, well, the reigning MVP in the National Football League, Aaron Rodgers, quarterback for the uh, Green Bay Packers, uh, who now is told has uh, tested positive for COVID-19 and will not be playing. Uh, which, by the way, has had a huge impact on the betting game for their place in Kansas City this weekend. But that aside, it's also raised an awful lot of questions about whether Rodgers was actually vaccinated. 
and whether he actually had maximum protection, uh, because he seemed to be, well, waffling on the issue uh, with uh, some of the comments that he made earlier. Uh, to talk about this and, and to talk about whether or not Rogers is actually putting his teammates and others in peril or whether this is just a fluke situation, uh, please welcome my good friend Scott Radley to the program. Scott, of course, is the host of the Scott Radley Show, which is every weekday evenings on CHML. And you can read his fabulous prose in the pages of the Hamilton Spectator every day as well. Uh, Scott, appreciate you jumping in. Thanks for the time today. No problem, Bill. What do you make of this Aaron Rodgers situation? Uh, it's it's sad. You know, there are people that are, are testing positive. Some of them even that have had vaccinations are testing positive. But, well, you know, that it just means that you've got, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be hospitalized. We don't know the extent of this right now. But the greater question, I guess, here is, did he mislead people? Uh, because he seemed to be indicating a little while ago that he did get vaccinated. Or did he say that? Well, that's the question. It's, it's pretty confusing. I, as I recall, and I had to look this up, or someone pointed out, I don't know where it was, last night, that he at one point said he was inoculated, I think was the word he used. Immunized, he said. I think immunized, was the word, Immunized. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we're all immunized, uh, I think. Um, you know, we, we have our tuberculosis and our rubella and all those things. I mean, that's what we generally consider our immunization when we're kids. So, you know, I, I, I almost, when I first heard this, I almost thought this is, this is, sort of a throwback to Bill Clinton saying, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. <laughs> well, you know, sexual relations, okay, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by immunized? And because it's, uh, you know, because it was thrown out there, nobody thinks to ask. And, and quite honestly, you know, in your, when you're in these circumstances, let's be honest, if you're in that press conference or whatever else, you don't, it's challenging to be the one that is going to pick at every single word. It really is. It's like you, you like to believe that the people who are answering the question are answering the question you asked. And if, if we get to a point where, whether it's with athletes or politicians or whomever, that literally every word they say, we have to think, okay, all right, is there a way this word could be more than one meaning? Do we have to follow this up? And then what about the follow-up to the follow-up? you end up in these very, first of all, it becomes pretty mistrusting. Like there has to be a, there has to be a belief that the person who is answering the question is answering the question. And it doesn't always happen. And in this case, it sounds like it may not have happened. It sounds like he may have played with some words from what we're understanding. And the question that was asked was not the answer that was given, even though it kind of sounded like it. Yeah, exactly. Because the question that was asked, and I'm sure many people have seen this, it's only about a five or 10 second clip. Uh, the reporter asked, have you received the COVID vaccine? And which I would think requires a yes or no answer. And instead, he says, I'm immunized, uh, which is, you know, as you say, may or may not be relevant to the question that was asked. It, or sounds, that like, it sounds like he's saying yes until yeah. you, until later when it turns out he may not have been. And then you go back and look at that word and go, okay, should I have been less trusting of the answer and said, okay, but does immunize, like, you could go down this path, Bill, with almost any press conference, with almost any interview, and challenge every single word. At a certain point, you kind of hope that there is, as I said a moment ago, um, a, a clarity or a level of trust or whatever in the person that they're answering the question you're asking. Well, it's, now, if you look at some of the subsequent comments, it, it, this is what I think brings this whole thing into question. Because uh, he talked about this saying, oh, that, you know, there are a lot of guys who haven't got it, and you know, I respect their opinion, yada, yada, yada. Most of the players on all teams are saying that. 
But then he goes on to say, say, thank God, I want to learn more about everything about this. And there's a lot of research that needs to be done into this. Then we find out that uh, I guess when this program began, uh, he basically asked the league if he could do something in an alternative fashion as opposed to getting a vaccination. And now we're not sure what the details are, but it was something the NFL said, no, that doesn't qualify. Uh, and it's, it's so that that was that. They said, no, you've got to get the vaccination or nothing. We didn't hear anything else from Rogers after that. And now with this positive uh, COVID test that Rogers has received, the NFL says, well, we've always considered him unvaccinated. Uh, so maybe they know something we don't know. Yeah. And, and remember, at the beginning of this year, and I, I, to be honest, Bill, I don't recall if this still stands, but at the beginning of the year, the NFL put out a statement that says, if there's an outbreak on your team that would require, that is of a certain size, that would require, say, that you don't have enough players to play or something along those lines, that game becomes a forfeit. So the Green Bay Packers, at this point, I would assume, if this is in fact the case, if someone didn't get the, and that was based on, by the way, if someone chose not to get the vaccine, yeah, they better hope they don't have 15 positive tests this afternoon or else this game may not get played and they may end up as a forfeit. And, you know, I think there's a lot of people who are probably Green Bay Packers fans who right now, depending on the outcome of the game, may just sort of go, oh, well, whatever, as long as we win. If they don't get to play, first of all, the TV networks will freak. Um, and and then if you take a loss, boy, suddenly Aaron Rodgers becomes not just a guy who's in the conversation about this. He becomes public enemy number one, I would think, in Green Bay among the fans. For how could you do this to our team? Well, look at the numbers here, and because I think your point's very germane. Uh, Rodgers, we know, has a positive COVID test, Okay. Uh, we also know that uh, that one of the wide receivers, uh, Devontae Adams, a very good one, as a matter of fact, was out last week because of a positive test. Uh, Alan Lazard, who's another receiver, missed the game because of uh, what was considered to be close contact with Adams. So he was being uh, you know, watched very closely. Uh, Kurt Benkert, who's another player, also had a positive COVID test. The defensive coordinator for the Packers has a positive test. If that's not an outbreak, I don't know what is. Although, as they say, they still have enough players that they can get on the field to yeah. play. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see what happens because, you know, they do these tests, as I understand it, very regularly. I mean, it is an ongoing thing with the teams. And, you know, if, if later this afternoon or tonight, and, and we know they, they, you know they get the responses, the results very, very quickly. Um, if you get a whole bunch more, I mean, heaven forbid this thing becomes an issue where they can't play the game. Because then it's a whole different story. Right now, it's right now it's a question of did a guy get it? Did he not? I know he's the most important player on the team, but you know if we play, and, and you know they're playing a good team this week, so they may not win anyway. And so, but if, if it's a forfeit, boy, you're you're into a whole different world. Well, that's already changed, and you know money talks in the National Football League as it does in most pro sports. Uh, and the betting line, uh, well, twenty four hours ago was pick 'em between Green Bay and Kansas City because, they, as you mentioned, both very good football teams. Uh, with the announcement that Rodgers isn't going to play because of the COVID test, now all of a sudden Kansas City are eight points favorites. A lot of money on the table for for a game like that. Uh, oh yeah, I, I'm sure, I'm sure the gamblers are not thrilled with this news. Those who've already put money down, and, and you know this is we get into a whole different story here. But I mean, we know what drives interest in the NFL. There are people who are football fans for sure, but we also know that what drives the NFL's viewership is betting. I mean, and has been for ages. And 
I'd love to know. I mean, there's there's no there's no uh, takebacks in Vegas as far as you know this because a guy could be injured and and they don't say well you know Aaron Rodgers got injured therefore you can take your bet back. This is a different story though, and I think there's a lot of people who are going to be really miffed that they put down a wager on Green Bay and then found out that Green Bay's best player for this reason is out. It's not a sprained knee. It's something else. To a greater point, though, you've been covering sports for a long, long time now. And, uh, again, the coach, Coach Lafleur from the Packers and just about all of the teammates echoed exactly what Rogers said, that this is a personal choice and I respect the choice, yada, yada, yada. Uh, do you really and truly think that everybody in the National Football League is out at the same page that we don't care about the vaccinations? Or are there some people that are concerned uh, that, you know, some guys on their team are not doing this, and, and but they've got to stay with one voice because they're afraid of the ramifications? You know what it's like in any sports league, and especially in the NFL, uh, if you break ranks. I mean, ask Colin Kaepernick. Well, yeah, the Colin Kaepernick thing, of course, is a little bit different. But I, I think, look, I, I think the NFL generally, the rosters, uh, not exactly, but it largely reflect society. You've got people from different backgrounds, of different uh, races. You've got people of different ages. You've got people of different political persuasions. There, there. I mean, I, I believe what you just said. I believe there are some who are too concerned about this, and I believe there are some who are very concerned about this. And I believe that if you go out in society, you would find almost the exact same thing. The only difference is between them and normal society is all those guys are making millions of dollars and we're not. Well, maybe you are, but I'm not. <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm in the same category, buddy. Okay. Uh, yeah, we're still at the discount lock there at Walmart, okay? So don't go there. But I'm, but no, I'm just wondering about similar. that. I, I just, I, I'm wondering about the unanimity in this because you, you'd be concerned about this. I mean, especially if you're, a, 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 I was going to say, a young up-and-comer in the NFL. I mean, you're still making a couple of hundred thousand bucks a year, I guess, even if you're not even dressing for the game. So that's the kind of money that they make there. But you have to wonder uh, as to whether or not people are concerned about this, especially within the Packer organization. I mean, when they got five guys right now that are testing positive, uh, I mean, we know from our coverage of, of COVID, uh, if there was one outbreak in a healthcare facility, it's called an outbreak. You know, one case. Uh, there's five here on you know this roster, and you got to wonder if they're a little more worried about it than they're talking about. Listen, I got a couple of minutes left. There's one other yeah. thing I got to ask you about because you've covered this extensively on your program over the last uh, number of days, weeks, I guess now. Uh, the the Blackhawks situation. Yep. And uh, uh, we got word, of course, that uh, that Brad Aldrich's name has now been X'd out of the Stanley Cup as part of the 2010 champions. Of course, the Blackhawks won that, and the, you know everybody on the team gets their name on the Stanley Cup. Uh, and I know that uh, the owner of the Blackhawks had requested from the Hockey Hall of Fame, who actually, I guess, control the, the Stanley Cup, uh, to get his name off of there. They've done that. So uh, I, maybe I'm being cynical about this, Scott, because of the way they've handled this in Bettman's comments during his uh, press conference the other day. Does the NHL just uh, clean their hands off and say, we're done with this now, that's it, his name's off the cup, let's move on? Or, or is, is there going to be more action and more ramification from, from what we found out and, and the way the NHL has treated this? Well, okay, so uh, a couple things. I, I think it was the right move. I, I've, I've had problems with uh, leagues in sports that have tried to erase people's um, participation or, or what they've done in sports when the thing that happens, uh, and let's use O.J. Simpson as an example. I mean, one of the greatest examples. Um, I, I don't think you can obliterate O.J. Simpson's records or marks or history on the NFL because of what happened later. 
even though it was entirely distasteful, what he did in football was what he did in football. There is a difference here, though, because this was directly related to what was going on with the Chicago Blackhawks as the Blackhawks were on their way to winning a championship. So I, I absolutely think it was the right thing to X the name off here. Uh, I, I have no problem with that. And keep in mind, the names that go on to the Cup are the ones provided by the team. It's not by the league. It's provided by the team. So um, even though, and this is where it gets even more disturbing, I suppose, is even though, as that report shows us, they knew something had happened. They may not have, not have known every detail, but they knew something had happened, and they still submitted his name to be put on the cup. So good that that is off there. Uh, very appropriate that his name is off there. But the follow-up question about is this all then, um, that's a you know that's a question that you're going to have to ask Gary Bettman or or you know the other people in the league. I mean you know Gary Bettman's press conference the other day has been widely panned as being not very good, and you know it was pointed out that the the, the reporter who broke this story and really covered it that another reporter essentially had to call out the NHL to say, well, wait, why have you not called on him for a question? They, they basically blocked him out until they were called on it. Mm -hmm. um, the NHL, and then it was pointed out in that interview that the NHL gave stiffer suspensions to a team for breaking thing, breaking rules to do with the draft and working out players than they did for this. We'll see what the NHL does going forward on this one. I, I can't believe that with all the stuff that's swirling that this is it. And further, Bill, and, and I, I hope I'm, I desperately hope I'm wrong. I find it hard to believe that this will be the only case. I mean, it's, somewhere along the way, it's almost inevitable, isn't it, that there's going to be something else that comes out. And that's not just a hockey thing. That's a society thing. We see it in every... Sure. And so if there's another case that emerges... How do you then not take further action? How do you not do more? How do you not put in better processes? How do you? I, I, I'm 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 positive that you know if the question is, or have we heard the last of this? Basically, I, I'm positive the answer to that is no. I, I know I got a minute left here. There's been calls for Gary Bettman's head too. That maybe it's time to step down after all these years and the way he's handled this. Uh, as you've written about in the past, I mean, Gary Bettman exists at the, at the pleasure of the NHL owners. Yep. Uh, if they get tired of him, they dump him like a bad habit. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know that that's going to happen because I'm not so sure that, uh, that there's a lot of hand-wringing going on at the board of directors meetings about this. I mean, they're, they're embarrassed by it, but I, I don't know if they're more upset that it became public as it is that it happened. And, and that's just based on some past experience we've seen with the NHL owners. So I don't think Bettman's going anywhere anytime soon. I would agree, and again, it, it, I think things become different if there becomes a second or a third incident that doesn't have to be with the Blackhawks necessarily. Yeah. Um, particularly, Bill, if it happens going forward from here, because the NA, the NHL had an opportunity to really make a mark, to really slap the Blackhawks. What happens? And again, heaven forbid, what happens if another one of these happens subsequent to where we are right now? And you could say, had the NHL done something more, it could have prevented this from happening afterwards. Uh, then you get into a real world of problem, and that's where Gary Bettman may find himself in some trouble. Uh, I, I'm with you, though. I don't see Gary Bettman being pushed out unless, some, unless another shoe drops that we don't know about yet. 
The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.